back in 84, after seeing Twisted Sister on Friday Night Videos, I asked my parents for three things. I wanted a guitar, I wanted an amp, and I wanted a pair of aviator sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so in other words, you wanted to replace me in the witness protection program. Pretty, pretty much. So, okay. so I got a Westone Electra blue burst guitar i got a pv audition 20 and i got the aviators but since the aviators are long gone <laughs> since then i haven't put out put down my guitar and i'm 47 now so it is a super pleasure man to uh talk to you like this well you know thank you um don't we all have stories about what it is that uh made us do what we want to do you mm -hmm. know i mean i my first rock concert that I ever went to, um, I just I just connected some historical dots to this particular description. Um, uh -huh. But a neighbor of mine who was a couple years older than me, so this is 1966, I was 14, and he was 17. Uh -huh. So the animals who had uh, House of the Rising Sun, you know, and that was the first, basically, that was a number one song. It was one of the first British invasion bands to have a number one song after the Beatles hit. Mm -hmm. Most people think it's the Rolling Stones or the Dave Clark Five, and it wasn't. It was the Animals. Um, he took me to see the, the Animals uh, in a concert in Central Park, and in those days, the tickets were a dollar. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There were the Schaefer Festival tickets were one dollar, and that's if you want to sit in the balcony. If you want to sit in the front, it was a dollar fifty. OK, so he takes me to the concert and it was August 3rd, 1966. And why would that really matter historically? The reason why that would matter historically is because after that show, Chaz Chandler was taken by Keith Richards' girlfriend down to the Cafe Wa to see Jimi Hendrix for the first time. Mm. So that night, which August 3rd, 1966, was the night that Chas Chandler saw Jimmy play at the Cafe Wa, and he decided he was going to sign Jimi Hendrix to a management contract and take him to England, and of course the rest is history. So here I am, 14 years old, seeing the animals, not realizing, of course, that that very night was the night that changed the world in a way, uh, because he saw Jimmy. So that kind of puts that in context. And... As you point out, uh, you saw my thing and wanted aviator glasses and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and I either see the Beatles on TV or whatever, and I want that. So it always is the thing that sparks, you know, something sparks it. Something. Although I never cared. I love the Beatles, but never cared to own any of the guitars they own, nor did mm -hmm. I care about playing their songs. Um, so it wasn't until the blues bit me. In 1966, 67, and then I said, oh, I need to get a Fender Telecaster because Mike Bloomfield from the Paul Butterfield Blues Band is playing a <laughs> Telecaster, and it's on the back of the album cover. And uh, and at that point, you know, I was uh, selling weed a lot, so I was making a lot of money. But also, to, to be fair, the price of new gear was cheap. So a brand right. new Telecaster was $135. Mm-hmm. You know, and so most guitars were a couple hundred bucks, most in those days right amplifiers for three hundred dollars and you know and then the tickets to the shows that we would all go to see were a dollar or two dollars or three at the Fillmore and you know so you could see Zeppelin and the Who and the tickets are three bucks in fact the tickets are three four and five dollars 
So mm-hmm. you can imagine this, okay? You can see Led Zeppelin, you can see Rod Stewart, Jeff Beck, Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Janis Joplin, Country Joe, Crosby, Stills, Nash, The Who, whatever. And the tickets are through three bucks, with three, four, and five dollars. And if you couldn't, and 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 if you couldn't afford that, you saw them at the Schaefer Festival in the park, where the tickets were a dollar. Mm-hmm. And when the tickets went up to uh, three, when the, when Bill Graham raised the price by fifty cents. So the tickets were three fifty, four fifty, and five fifty. <laughs> there were riots on Second well, Avenue. Well, you know, I read that in Bill Graham's uh, in Bill true. Graham's book where he talks about that. And yeah, it's a hundred percent true. You know, and what was so funny is that you're mentioning all this. So I'm I'm actually a, a a big Deadhead myself, and you know, kind of discovered them in the in the nineties, and have since been a huge fan. So I grew up a metalhead, became a Deadhead, stayed a metalhead, you know, and kind of found myself in this whole, you know, this expanded universe where you know you don't realize how boxed in you are as a music fan until you hear something else that is generally outside of you know your your norm and so one of the things i heard you talk about a lot was going to the Fillmore, you know and seeing the dead and you know paul butterfield and things like that like at that time like you know while you definitely don't have you don't sound like the grateful dead was the grateful dead or bands like that kind of somewhat of an influence on you as a musician at some point <laughs> Well, you know, I had um, when I read about the Grateful Dead in a magazine article on a magazine called Ramparts, and they did a thing on the San Francisco Sound. So it was the Dead, the Airplane, Moby Grape. Mm-hmm. It was all that, and uh, and uh, and so as soon as I heard the Dead were playing in New York um, at the Fillmore, I wanted to go see them. Now they opened for Janis Joplin the first time I saw them mm-hmm. people have no concept of what the Grateful Dead are as an opening act you know because you just <laughs> figure the Grateful Dead play for you know a hundred thousand hours right. you, can't, you can't imagine the Dead play 40 minutes can you you can't no not so, at all <laughs> so uh, I went to see them and they opened for Janis Joplin and they played 40 minutes and I was very disappointed because all they did was tune up and said goodnight <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, you know, they kind of walk out on stage and they they jerk around and, you know, and I was, I took acid to see them. And by the time the LSD hit, they said goodnight. And I was disappointed because uh, I, I was waiting for this like six hour thing, which of course made no sense because I knew they were an opening act. So I didn't even know what I was thinking, but they came back again a couple of months later. And again, I went to see them. And again, they were opening for Country Joe and the Fish. And again, I took acid. And again, as the acid hit me, they said goodnight. Mm-hmm. I met Bob Weir years, you know, not long ago. And I kidded with him. I said, God, I saw you guys as an opening act. And all I remember is you tuned up and said goodnight. And he went, yeah, that's about right. Like he didn't really <laughs> argue the point with me, you know, because uh, he couldn't even imagine what it was like to do a 40-minute opening set. But when they played with Country Joe, the, the Country Joe said – uh, you know, you people in New York have never seen the Grateful Dead as a headliner. So tomorrow night, I'm going to let them close. And that's what they did. So they went on stage. I don't know what time it was, but they ended at four in the morning. And <laughs> and I had seen God and it was the greatest thing. So, yeah, I was a huge deadhead and saw them um, 27 times with Garcia and with Pigpen. To give you an idea how long ago that was. So right. Was from six, 69 to 72, I saw them um, 27 times. And 
but when the glam thing hit me, I was transitioning from a hippie to a glam guy. And that right. basically happened in a 30-day period of time in September of 72. It changed my life. And I and I really looked in the mirror and said, why do I want to look like that? I want to look like Mick Ronson. Right, you know? right. So that was the whole thing. And so I cut my hair, dyed it blonde, and became a gigantic Bowie, Lou Reed, Martha Hoople fan. And what that did was they completely walked away from the Grateful Dead. I mean, 100% just kind of said, you know what, this is not me. But we all have these legitimate backgrounds. So, uh, but, but then um, I went through an enormous transformation where I walked away from the dead and drugs completely. Like mm -hmm. completely. Just became so anti-drugs and anti... And, I went from being a drug addict and a drug dealer to being the most anti-drug person on the planet mm -hmm. just because I decided to, not because of any great, not because I went to AA or went to, you know, whatever. I mm -hmm. just woke up one morning and went, you know what, I better stop because I'm going to die. And so I stopped mm -hmm. and I never went back. So, And that happened in one day, basically. You know, so kind of to backtrack a little bit, uh, a friend and I had this conversation. We were talking about influences, like musical influences. And one of the arguments that we were having was like if I said somebody was an influence on another band, he would be like, that can't be because they don't sound anything like them. But then my yeah. argument was. Well, J.J. French was an influence on me to pick up a guitar. I still consider you an influence, even though I play roots rock music. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't play, you know, metal or anything anymore. So, it, 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 in your opinion, is it still possible to be an influence on someone and not sound like them? Well, I, I'm not a metal guy. Mm -hmm. I play in a band that plays metal, mm -hmm. but that's not me. Right. You know, I mean, uh, Twisted started out as a Bowie Lou Reed kind of band. And yes, I was that. Mm -hmm. But I started out as a blues guitar player and, and remain one. And if you want to talk about roots rock, I mean, my favorite band is the band. Oh, and it doesn't get much more authentically roots rocky. They than are them, up there. Know? They are I up mean, there with the me. band. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I say the band and the Beach Boys are probably the two greatest bands that America ever produced. Mm -hmm. and, and, and and I have a whole argument about that because uh, there's a lot of great bands for sure. But if you look at the Mount Rushmore of rock bands, you've got the Beatles, Stones, Who's Up, Floyd, Queen. That's what I think is the Mount Rushmore of rock bands. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, maybe you could throw in Black Sabbath if you're a metal guy. But the thing is, you got Beatles, Stones, Who's Up, Floyd, Queen. And that's a fucking... But what's the problem with that description is they're all British. Right. right. They're all British. Mm -hmm. So where's the American great band? Not good bands. There's plenty of good ones, but great transcend transcendent bands that alter the music universe. Right. So mm -hmm. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, and I'm coming up with the band mm -hmm. and I'm coming up with um, the Beach Boys. And there's arguments you can make against that. I mean, the band didn't sell mega billions of records. Right. Okay. Right. But they certainly... Without the band, you wouldn't have the Eagles for sure. Uh -uh. You know, you just wouldn't. I mean, maybe you could say the Birds, but the Birds didn't have that much of. A, the Birds were phenomenal, but they just didn't have a huge, um, uh, 
uh, resume of music. You know, they had some right. good stuff, not mm-hmm. a ton. Birds were definitely, and of course, everything was influenced by the Beatles. So if we look at the Beatles as being ground zero, you know, without them, nothing exists anyway. That's mm-hmm. that. You know, there's a Beatles, and you can make a case there's Beatles and everything else, but. In terms of the great American bands, the Beach Boys preceded the Beatles, and mm-hmm. the Beach Boys were copied by the Beatles because the Beatles were very, very, very jealous of how good the Beach Boys were. So you can't take away the influence. But here's the difference. So I'm sitting here thinking, well, we have Van Halen and Metallica and the Eagles, and, mm-hmm. and you can make a case. But to me, they don't transcend the greatness, like the super greatness that that I use as criteria. So then I started thinking, well, this is kind of interesting because America doesn't necessarily have great bands, but we have great people. So we have right. Elvis and we have Dylan and we have James Brown and we have Chuck Berry and we have Roy Orbison and we have Aretha Franklin and we have Ray Charles. And we have Frank Sinatra. Um, and, um, you know, we have these, you know, you have Bruce Springsteen. You have these singular individuals mm-hmm. who are phenomenal performers. I mean, right. you know, what are you going to say? Elvis, Dylan, Hendrix, Springsteen, uh, Sinatra. I mean, these are monumental artists, right? But they're individ- they're pretty much individuals as opposed to England is bands. And 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 so when you look at it, England as individuals, you got Bowie, mm-hmm. you got Rod Stewart, you got Elton John, but we have 20 times more spectacular individuals than England has, but they've got 20 times more spectacular bands <laughs> than we have. Oh, yeah. So so it's just an inter- it's, uh, it's just my own view of things. That's mm-hmm. just an interesting separation. And look, plenty of people are going to go, well, you're Mount Rushmore of rock, Beatles, Stones, who's that Floyd Queen? They're not my Mount Rushmore of rock. My Mount Rushmore of rock is the Ramones and the Sen- whatever, mm-hmm. you know, wh- whatever. I'm not going to get into an argument with people. They're going to do what they do. But America seems to excel in the individual in the individual thing. I think that's part of the American thing, isn't it? That exceptionalism, that individual, you know, everybody can make it on their own. And and why is it, by the way, that American artists with bands call themselves out of their name? So in other words, the Beatles aren't Paul McCartney and the Beatles or John Lennon and the Beatles. The Rolling Stones aren't right. Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. Queen isn't Freddie Mercury and Queen. But why is it Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band? Why is it Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers? <laughs> right. You know? well, well, yeah, exactly. Like why? Like even when Dylan was with the did the thing with the band it was bob dylan and the band and the band (laughs) you know why is it that we we need to put our name out there um but england doesn't you know now will you find an exception yes elvis costello and the attraction and ian Dury and the blockheads i guess and by the way what's really kind of fucks up my entire logic is Mm -hmm. that if you go back to liverpool Mm -hmm. to the beatles period you know, you had Freddie and the Dreamers, Billy J. Kramer and the Codes, <laughs> Jerry and the Pacemakers. Jerry and the Pacemakers. I was just going to say that one. <laughs> you know, you had all these bands with these guys who were kind of named in the front. But anyway, mm-hmm. it's a fun exercise to do. And uh, and and uh, I'm a sum of uh, my guitar playing is just a sum of my uh, my love, my interest. I was a doo-wop mm-hmm. fan. You know, I'm, I'm old enough. I grew. I was born in '52. So do I love doo-wop music? I oh, love yeah. it, and I love blues, and, and I fell in love with blues, and blues became the the the, the thing. But when metal got into the shredder world, mm-hmm. you know, in the eighties, I, I that was where, uh, it, I that was where it just lost me. You know, that's that was like an aspect of 
hard rock and metal that I didn't really get into myself either because you know i you know like at least for the past 30 something years i've always been a lyricist i've been a lyricist i've been a you know a a songwriter and i love melody i love good hooks i love you you know what i mean like everything that kind of grabs you again like you know twisted sister quiet riot um you know, even going back to like, you know, ACDC, um, Def Leppard, you know what I mean? Like the, the yeah. songs had hooks and they would grab you almost and, and demand your attention. Whereas like to me, the whole shred world was just like, oh, yeah, I get it. You you can play faster than a locomotive. But where's the hook? Where's the melody? Where's the the emotion? You know? Yeah. And most of that stuff doesn't exist and then people say well it's just an excuse because you can't play it and i'll say okay fair enough but you know it didn't interest me enough to care because i didn't think there was enough there to be there about however mm-hmm. do you not look at, you know of course they are george lynch is great and nuno Betancourt is fabulous mm-hmm. and and uh you know and I, you know and eddie van halen is great and, but you know but that's not my favorite players i mean albert king and bb king um uh, single note, Leslie West, these guys play one note, you know, two notes, three notes, and they play them with enormous feeling. So um, I tend to gravitate towards towards that. But I'm older and I've had a lot more experiencing a lot more artists. Uh-huh. So if you grew up, if you're, if you're 10 years younger than me or 20 years younger than me, maybe you don't see the depth of artists that, that I, I had. But Bill Graham, God bless his soul put on amazing shows with crazy bills you uh-huh. know so you would see i mean look woody herman is a clarinet player uh-huh. and i saw the woody herman orchestra open for led zeppelin <laughs> and that's got to be one of the strangest bills on the planet earth here's a picture of woody herman and his clarinet and picture of led zeppelin on the same poster right you would never see that <laughs> Could you imagine that today? Could you imagine Branford Marsalis opening up for Metallica? I don't think it would ever happen. <laughs> Not to say that you wouldn't appreciate the excellence of Branford Marsalis, but you, the the audiences would never accept it. You know what I mean? That's the point. The audiences are you know the audiences get spoon fed these bills. Bill Graham just put all this crazy shit on, and mixed them up, and and so you saw pretty interesting bills with a lot of different artists you know but i i mean i was fortunate enough to see <clears throat> the mothers of invention and mm-hmm. frank zappa and moby grape i mean moby grape may have been the best band out of san francisco maybe the mm-hmm. most talented certainly the best vocals great songwriting right. great players uh didn't make it like the airplane did right and certainly the dead are the biggest of mm-hmm. that whole era didn't happen for them but they were probably the most talented buffalo springfield's Phenomenal band, made three albums, mm-hmm. spectacular records, went on to create other bands that were very, very successful. Right. The Birds begat the Springfield, begat Crosby, Stills, and Nash, mm-hmm. the whole Southern California. I mean, it's all it's all interconnected. And if you're old enough to have been there during that whole explosive period from 68 onward, it's uh, it gives you a very interesting perspective. You know, it was really interesting. One of the things you were talking about was these crazy bills was that Bill Graham was very much a music fan. Like he loved music. And 
again, one of the things I really appreciated out of it that I didn't really know in the past before reading his book many years ago was that his goal was to culture some of these audiences. And I remember reading somewhere where he was just like a huge Buddy Rich fan. And he was just like, these kids need to know who Buddy Rich is. So I'm going to put them on a bill with the dead in the airplane. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like Buddy Rich would be up there just like melting their faces. And these kids had never even heard him, you know, but yet here he was on a bill with two of the biggest bands at the time, you know, and I, I kind of regret not being able to see that kind of eclectic um, pairing of bands, you know, in my teens or even in my you know later years you know you don't see that kind of eclectic you know check this out you need to hear this even if you haven't heard it before yeah also you know when you're paying three dollars for a ticket it's not like you're mortgaging your house to go see a show and if the opening <laughs> act sucks you know like you're gonna want to shoot yourself because you just blew you know like you just wasted hundreds i mean think about that think about mm -hmm. the price of tickets and and so in those days, the tickets were three bucks. I mean, when you went to the garden to see Jimi Hendrix or the Rolling Stones in 69, the tickets were $6 at the garden. Oh, yeah. You know, six, seven, eight dollars. Beatles were $4.50 at Shea, I think, three fifty, four fifty, and five fifty. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when when that's the case, you don't feel ripped, ripped off. I mean, these days you spend... Uh, you know, $400 on a ticket to see the Stones and they can't even play. And you sit there and go, why, you know, I mean, they're just, they're just, they're like the worst man, you know, and it's feel terrible saying it because I'm a huge fan, but you mm -hmm. know, they just can't play. So, you know, they're, but their fans, the Stones fans are really old, mm -hmm. you know, and they don't clap because they're afraid the lights will go on in the arena. So I think, uh, <laughs> Um, I'm old enough to know, know what a clapper is, by the way. I mean, you know, I mean, God forbid they should have metal detectors at Stones concert with all the walkers that are used. The show would never go on. People wouldn't be in their seats until like four fucking o'clock in the morning. Dude, you know? it was the only with show. Was the pace, well, you figure all the knee replacements, pacemakers, and walkers fucking you can never get into the concert. At that so, point, they're just like waving them in, like, come on, yeah. just go well, sit down. Well, if you down. think about it, you know, the, look, the truth is when I was 17, this is the part that really, so when people say is rock dead, rock's not dead. Okay, fair enough, rock's not dead, but explain this to me. When I was 17, all the bands I went to see, Beatles, Stones, Who's Def Live, blah, 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 they were all 26. Think right. about this. I'm oh, 17. Yeah. They're 26, 27. Thousands of these amazing artists, Dylan, Hendrix, Joplin, The Dead, um, you know, you name it, Pink Floyd. None of these guys are older than 27. When 27 is probably as old as they are when I was 17. Mm -hmm. So where's the thousands of 27-year-old rock stars right now? You can't name one. No. Because they don't exist. They don't exist. And so therefore... Um, rock uh, is is at a crossroads right now as far as the new blood. It doesn't mean kids don't love it. It doesn't mean kids don't love Zeppelin. But it's just like, where's the market with all those young people? Mm -hmm. It doesn't exist. That's that's uh, and, and and for all the people that want, that that love rock and want to argue, you can't argue that point with me because I'll go, okay, go ahead, start naming them. Here I am, name me all the great rock bands right now that are under the age of twenty seven. Name mm -hmm. them. Let's go. Right. Uh, Greta Van Fleet. Right. That's it. 
Well, it's funny because there's so many other ones that are, you know, like I can think of a, a, a few of those bands that are, you know, kind of in their 20s. But even then, they're so underground that they don't that they can't make it on the road you know because it's you know they've got to live in a van they've got to do 200 shows or whatever but i just don't see what i saw when i was a kid like you know like i kind of miss seeing the rock star you know like you know like when i go see alice cooper and I'm looking up at Alice Cooper and I'm going like, like he is playing some of the best shows of his career with a bunch of like 30 and 40 something year old musicians in his band. But then there's like the young band playing the butthole club and they look like they're about to die after four songs. Do you know what I mean? So I feel like well, sometimes that drive might not be there because they don't remember or they weren't around for that. Yeah, they don't understand. Um, we came out of an era where you played bars and you worked five nights a week and you played four or five shows a night. And you do that for five, six, seven, eight, nine years like we did. And you got thousands of shows under your belt. You know, so when people say, how does Twisted do it or why are you guys so good? Because, uh, you know, if you still suck after 5,000 shows, you really have a problem <laughs> on your hand. And, and, and I have a problem when, when, when guys come up to me and they go, man, you got to see my group, man. And I go, oh, well, how long you been together? Two years. Oh, okay. How many shows do you play? Well, we played about 50 shows. Said, oh, that's really good. 50 shows, huh? Yeah. I said, well, when you get to 500 shows, call me and I'll come down. 500 will never happen. I said, well, there's a good chance I'll never fucking see your band because <laughs> I have no intention of seeing your band without 500 shows because you're going to suck and I know you're going to suck. Therefore, I don't really need to waste my fucking time in the process. When Twisted's first two years of existence, we played almost 2,000 before performances right in the first two years because we were working six days a week five shows a night you do the math you'll see it yeah um now that now someone said that's old-fashioned man you know like uh, that's fucked up you can't you know it's the world isn't like that anymore and i go good i don't need it <laughs> you know it's like okay so fine you know you don't impress me i'm only telling you what my standards are my, i have very high standards uh-huh okay very high standards you got it and, and i don't want you to suck i don't want you to waste my time so well, you know, and that's the other thing too is that, like, you know, one of the things that you just said that kind of hit hit a hit a nerve with me in a good way was that you said like somebody was like, you know, that's old fashioned. It doesn't work that way anymore. You know, like my band and I, like, we've been together for probably about you know six years or so. We're just a local band. We don't tour. You know, we're all in our forties. You know, but we play original music. We have a good time. But we've also come to this idea that you know okay so even if it's old school or it doesn't seem to exist anymore you make the rules for your own fucking band so you can do whatever the fuck you want so if if that if that aspect of work or that kind of performing doesn't exist in the venues make it yourself you know yeah. i just don't think that a lot of artists realize that you can do so much on your own without having to rely on a club or a venue or whatever well what what that is is you have to adapt to the times that are around you mm -hmm. so um so when bands come to me and they ask me for advice and uh, my first reaction is fuck you i never got advice so why should you be so lucky <laughs> and that's a horribly arrogant statement so i have um i've i've uh, so i've modified that statement a bit because it's actually not true. I did mm -hmm. ask one famous person for advice, 
um, and that's Tommy James from Tommy James and the Shondells. Mm-hmm. You know, they had that. They had, I think we're alone now, and yeah. Hanky Panky and Moni Moni. For those of you who uh, were Crystal Blue Persuasion, a lot of hits. Right. And we did a show with them, and uh, Dee had just joined the band, so it was 1976, and we were playing a corner bar in Long Island. Mm-hmm. Now you figure for us playing at this corner bar with 300 people in it in 1976 was a big deal. Right, that mm-hmm. was something we looked forward to. Right, but Tommy James had already had his superstar hit back in '66, '67, '68. So him playing a corner bar is not exactly the high point of his career. <laughs> so, so he's probably you know he's kind of like on the down or just trying to get a gig. And we're like, wow, we're playing with Tommy James. So, um, so we we are walking downstairs. We had just finished our opening set, and he was walking upstairs. And I got him in the staircase and I said to him, hey, man, give me some advice. And he goes, "Okay." He said, "Um, uh, always be good to people because you meet the same people on the way up as you do on the way down. And you want to make sure that people treat you well. Now, that's pretty cool advice. And it's general advice for everything in the world, not just being in a rock and roll band. Right. It's just good advice. And uh, so I did. Anyway, so I'm asked for advice. And uh, and after I finished laughing, you know, I go, "Okay, okay, here's the deal. Um, if I was 20 years old today, I would simply look around at what my 20 year old peers were doing Mm -hmm. and I would steal every idea that I saw if I didn't think of it myself and I would copy as much as I could and uh, try to find my own pathway because you have to deal with the playing field that you're given. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, when my day, the playing field was, there was a lot of bars. You became a copy band. That's what you did because gasoline was, you know, 29 cents a gallon and a house rental was $300 a week mm-hmm. and uh, truck rental was $25 a week. And, uh, excuse me, house rental was $300 a month. Um, studio time was cheap. You can make demos cheap. And, you know, you made $150 a night playing bars six nights a week. So if you're making $900 a week and you're expenses and your rent is 300 a month for a band house you make money you know you can make money so we had the economy uh, we had it all figured out on how to make money and survive the economy well that today gas is five dollars a gallon and that house is for three thousand dollars a month mm-hmm. rent. everything has changed so what are you doing to adapt to the current climate that you have that's what you have to do you have to observe your playing field and you have to adapt to it so I have no doubt that if I desperately wanted to become a rock star today and I was 20, I'd figure it out. You know, what we used to do is we used to look at other bands making more money than us and said, how are they doing that? Why are they making mm-hmm. 500 a night and we're making 150 a night? Okay? So you figured, okay, they're making that money because their song list is better, their PA may be better, this may be better. So you just start, you know, you start kind of copying the ideas that you think it work. So if you're a 20-year-old guy now, a 20-year-old person in a band, and you're trying to figure out how to make it, well, there's other new artists that are 20, 21, 22, and they're having more success than you. Mm-hmm. Look at what they're doing. Is it their social media profiles? Is it their reach-out program? Is it their merch sales? You know, What are they doing you're not doing? Try to do what they do. That's the easiest thing you can do to try to break into the next level because before you become the Beatles – you better be better than the band next door. Simple as that. And if you're not better than your local competition, you're never going to make it. So while keeping your eye on the prize and the long term is wonderful, you need to look directly around. You know, all this is addressed in my upcoming book, which will be out in September called Twisted Business. Yes. And that's actually what I was going to kind of say. Great segue, by the way, because I was actually that was next on my list <laughs> was to ask you about that, because 
one of my questions that you know I've been doing my blog now for about uh, 12 years and uh, I get asked a question sometimes by younger art musicians and artists and their question to me is is it worth it for me to try to pursue being a rock star or a full-time musician and my answer to them first off would be like i'm not an authority on this but there's a difference between being a full-time musician and a rock star so like if you want to be a rock star i would assume that you know kind of like what you were talking about like i kind of look at that with twisted with twisted is that you guys kind of looked at other bands and say okay you know we're going to nab that but we're going to do it better okay we're going to take that from them and we're going to do it better and you just it's almost like you create this hodgepodge of just you, you know, it's like Legos. You know, you just take in a little bit, piece them all together, and then eventually you have the you're the biggest toy. You know. Well, you know, I do motivational speaking and keynote speeches to entrepreneurs, and and I say, and what I say to them, which applies to the music industry especially, is that why do you become an entrepreneur? You become an entrepreneur for one of two reasons. You either thought of something that nobody in the world ever thought of before, and you're willing to risk everything in you have to get it to the world, to show it to the world. You're willing to risk everything. Um, or there's something that pre-exists, but you think you can do it better, and you're willing to risk everything. So mm -hmm. in a rock band, there's a million rock bands. So that just means you have to believe that you're a better rock band. You have mm -hmm. to believe you can do it better and that you're willing to sacrifice. The truth of the truth, well, it used to be true. I don't know if it's true anymore, but no one, no musician I know who knows how to read music as a rock star and no rock star I know knows how to read music. So I can't read a note, man. And I'm not you know, a rock star. So, so um, we're busy becoming rock stars. They're busy becoming musicians. You know, I busy, mm -hmm. I wanted to become a rock star and I became one for better or worse. And, uh, and I can't read music. I don't know anything. I know no music theory at all. I just figured it out. You know, I just kind of like, um, I just, listen to records and hung out with people and learn how to do this, that, and the other thing, and then became adept at keeping a business together. And well, that's how it worked for me. Well, that, that's kind of the same concept, right? Like, as you were talking about, like, you know, how to decide on being a band and what level is it as a musician, you kind of do the same thing, right? Like guitar player, you're like, okay, show me that little piece. Okay, I'm going to learn that little piece. Okay, now I'm going to put these two pieces together. Great. Now I've got a solo. But you you don't have to read a lick of music, you know. You know, I didn't want to play classical music. I wanted to play ACDC, you know. And so, like, my, my guitar teacher told my parents, he's either gonna want to be Twisted Sister or he's gonna want to be, you know, a classical guitar player. And I don't see that happening because he wants to be Twisted Sister and ACDC and Priest. Right. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> so right. to yeah, me, yeah. I know 100% what you mean. Yeah. And, and they make it digestible, although. Understand, ACDC may look easy. You know, I think what you do is you need to read the, you need to kind of become familiar with Chuck Berry first. Like mm -hmm. Chuck Berry's in the, the entrance, to the entree to all of it, to me, is Chuck Berry. He's mm -hmm. easy to emulate. He's a phenomenal player, but he's easy to emulate. And, and once you get that feel, then you can understand AC, for sure ACDC. I mean, for sure. ACDC was complicated because, um, Malcolm Young was a great guitar player, and he mm -hmm. thought some really great parts out. I mean, Angus gives him all the credit, you know, for that. Right. Uh, the, and but these guys are great players. I mean, they're a great band, and Ron Scott is 
was a great vocalist and Brian Johnson is a great vocalist and they mm-hmm. understood the right mix of things and and they kind of they're like the Grateful Dead of metal mm-hmm. you know what I mean they're just <laughs> every, who doesn't love ACDC I mean everybody loves ACDC have you ever heard one person say they don't like it I've never heard anybody say they don't like ACDC and I don't know that I necessarily trust anyone <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't Who like doesn't ACDC. Like ACDC? Yeah, right. I mean, they're like they're like one of the food groups that you eat. You know, like can you live without air? No, so you can't live without ACD. I don't care. I mean, the Beatles occupy a position. The Stones occupy a position. ACDC occupies this freaking amazing position. They're just amazing. So, so yes. So you go from Chuck Berry. You kind of learn that stuff, and then you jump to ACDC, and you learn how to do that. You know, Priest is this archetype metal band. But they, you know, they were kind of rooted, you know, in that blues kind of thing and then moved in, you know, I mean, they were never a blues band, but they're easier to understand and digest as a metal band as opposed to jumping into Slayer, if you, if you know what I'm saying. Okay. Instead oh, yeah. Of, instead of taking that leap, you know, you can go to Motorhead and Judas Priest and Motorhead and Priest will, will then elevate your level. So when Twisted was in the bars, I was interviewing Rob Halford, you know, a, a couple of months ago for my podcast which is the jj french connection on apple podcast one and spotify and i realized that as a cover band twisted sister covered ozzy sabbath dio era mm-hmm. and halen lou reed uh, bowie you know alice cooper the usual gang of suspects right but right but you know, we would do two songs of each, but with Priest, we did seven Priest songs. <laughs> we only did three ACDC songs. We did seven freaking Priest songs. The Priest had an outsized influence on Twisted. I mean, ACDC mm-hmm. and Priest, if you listen to Shoot Him Down, it is almost, it's an ACDC song. Okay. If you listen, but oh, if, you yeah. listen to our Chris, if you listen to our Christmas record, which I don't know if you're familiar with the Twisted Christmas album. Absolutely. But if you listen yeah. to that record, that record was designed specifically to be a homage to all the bands that we loved. So White Christmas was done the way we imagined Iron Maiden would do White Christmas. Mm-hmm. And Silver Bells was done as we imagined um, ACDC would do Silver Bells. And I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus was done as we imagined Judas Priest would have done it. And the opening track... Um, have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas was done like the Ramones would do it. Right, so we, yeah. We loved these bands, and we did it as a homage to the styles that 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 we grew up with and emulated and loved. Mm-hmm. That's why they sound the way they do. So anyway, that, that that's all. So every artist finds an inspirational um, fountainhead, mm-hmm. and you have to do that first, and then you build on it. And then luckily, then if you have... You know, if you have the wherewithal and the luck to be at the right place at the right time uh, where you can learn your craft like we did, then you can take it to the next level. But you have to really kind of lynch, you have to kind of link on to something. I mean, look, when you talk to Jerry Garcia from the dead, they were big folkies. Oh, right. You yeah, know, they, absolutely. Jug band, folk. They Blue came grass, from that, they were know, all that world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and then they figured, then they created a language out of that world. You know, the birds, the, they saw the Beatles. Uh, it's a famous story. Roger McGuinn and I think Chris Hillman saw Hard Day's Night and freaked out. Mm-hmm. Freaked out. You know, that's what did it for them. And they needed to own Rickenbackers because they saw them playing Rickenbackers. Uh, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, 
I mean, but you know, and but we have this whole subculture in our music industry called alternative, mm-hmm. and I never really understood what that phrase meant because most alternative bands that I know, you know, it's an alternative to learning how to play music. You know, like it's an alternative to rehearsing. It's an alternative to singing. You know, some of these guys sing like they make Lou Reed sound like Luciano Pavarotti. I mean, you know, some just, I don't know. I, I, I got a demo tape from a relative once. I won't maybe mention the band he was in, but his, he sent it to me really seriously that he thought this was a great piece of work. And it was uh-huh. amongst the worst shit I ever, I mean, you couldn't get a more drunk bunch of animal house morons to put together a demo tape. And I called his mother and I went, uh, can I just ask you a question? This is like a funny frat joke, right? <laughs> oh, no, he's really serious. Really? What is he studying in school? Podiatry. My suggestion? Become a fucking podiatrist. Okay? <laughs> because, oh, my God. You know. And normally, I don't want to be Simon Cowell, because what the fuck do I know, right? I can be wrong. I could be wrong, but I would not be wrong in this case. It was some of the worst shit ever made by... by People whose families were born in Eastern Europe. <laughs> Just, oh God, it's fucking horrible. Well, you know that's the, horrible. That's, that's so horrible. funny that you say that because, like, you know, I, I I am like right at that age where I remember that whole cycle kind of flipping over. You know, like where we started to get like the kind of like alternative thing coming in. But you know, at the time, you know, I'm looking at a lot of these bands. I'm going, oh, you know, Soundgarden, great. They sound like Sabbath. You know, I'm like Pearl Jam, oh, great. They sound kind of like Roots Rock. You know, oh, Alice in Chains, they're just kind of like a dark metal band. But then the first time somebody played me Nirvana, I was like, is this really what record companies are signing now? Like, these guys can't play. Like, these guys made the monkeys look like, yes. You know what well, I mean? Well, like- you should say that because the Dolls were amongst the worst bands I'd ever seen. And they're like, oh, the Dolls. No, no, the Dolls, nothing. They were awful. <laughs> I saw them, you know, at the Mercer Arts. I mean, every week, look, I went hoping they'd be good because my friends knew them. I kind of knew Johnny. Mm-hmm. And um, they look great. I just was, I, when I went to see them, I was really hoping they were great. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, God, wh- this is what a, this is what New York has produced after five years of the Phil Maurice with the greatest musicians in the world coming through New York. This is the shit that's finally <laughs> representing New York. Is this shit? Were the, that serious? I mean, look, the Ramones may not have been the greatest band, but the Ramones had something different. Oh, they were them. melodic, you know? They had a thing. The Ramones had a thing, and I've always really, I've always liked them. You know, they just had a thing. They buzzsawed it, but they knew exactly who they were. And Joey Ramone, as limited as his vocals were, worked for that band. Uh. You know, like it really worked. Where I just don't think David Johansson's voice is any good. Uh-uh. You know, so I have a problem with 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 the Dolls. However. To be fair to the Dolls, I want to be fair, because I saw them many, many, many times. They did play one show in which they were particularly really good, and I was very happy for them. Mm-hmm. I thought, Mom, they're getting better, but then I saw them shortly after, and they just sucked again. <laughs> but they were really good on this one night, and that was at the Fillmore had reopened mm-hmm. in December of 72. I don't know if you saw our documentary. <clears throat> oh, um, yes, I've seen it probably about five it times. by Andy Horn, and Andy Horn actually <clears throat> produced that doll show at the Fillmore. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, and it was Eric Eric and the Magic Tramps, Teenage Lust and the New York Dolls, and the Dolls were really good. I remember thinking, wow, they really got better. I'm happy for them. And then I saw them a couple months later, and 
awful. So, uh, but they had a big hype. So you weren't a big fan of Nirvana, is what you're telling me. Correct. You right. Was, you didn't think it was great. So you know, everyone has a different. Everyone comes to these things differently. How many people hate the Grateful Dead? A lot of people hate the Dead. Oh, absolutely. You know, a lot of people. They can't listen to them. It's like a bunch of psychedelic drivel. My joke is I saw them 27 times. 26 times on acid, greatest band I ever saw. 27th time I went straight and said, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> this is the worst band on the planet. You know? I say a, that in the documentary. Now, it's, yeah. it's, it's an exaggeration. I say it for fun. Mm -hmm. um, they're a great band, but uh, they lost me. One of the things I was uh, thinking about was I'm sure like you've heard the story a million times, you know, Twisted Sister, especially for a guy my age, you know, 80s, big turning point for me, but also a big saving point for me. You know, I was the fat kid. I was bullied, you know, and, you know, just trying to get through that horrible stage of just being a kid. But, you know, Twisted Sister was my soundtrack. That was my strength. And... That was the case for a lot of people my age. So back in the 70s with Twisted Sister, did you ever envision that you could actually be part of a band that would make that huge of a difference in many young people's lives that would last this long? Um, I don't think in the middle of it you aware, you're aware, mm -hmm. except that we were huge in the tri-state area. So by 1979... We were selling out 5,000-seat venues mm -hmm. in Long Island that for cover bands. And people don't even understand that. Club bands don't get it. <clears throat> but the drinking age was 18, which meant people who were 15 with fake proof, <laughs> which was easy to make in shop class, which doesn't <laughs> exist anymore. I'm sure everyone goes, what shop class, man? But back in our day, you had print class, and you mm -hmm. can make phony driver's licenses. Pretty easy. So everyone fake proof, and you got into these clubs, and there were thousands of kids, and the clubs were packed, and um, uh, and and so we were able to, we already knew how to play in front of thousands of people. So mm -hmm. we, the first time we played in front of twenty thousand people is when we were playing on Long Island on an mm -hmm. outdoor show. We did twenty thousand, twenty two thousand. They shut a highway down because so many people showed up at this outdoor show. So we knew how to do that thing. Um, but you still don't know when it's going to happen, where you're going to make the the leap. You know, mm -hmm. are you really going to make the leap? And, uh, and and finally, we kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And it's in the documentary. It's in my book. And and then when it all exploded, um, I don't think I thought about it. Mm -hmm. I was too busy working and too busy trying to not be depressed over what I thought was the inequities in the music business because was, I was always a business person. Right. So, so I had a whole different view of it. So it, am I, I'm not surprised. I'm always humbled when, I, when people say this to me because – I can say that to a million artists. You know, I can say to Zeppelin and to, you know, all these, uh, without you, you know, I saw you guys, blah, blah, blah. And I, you know, I saw Cream and The Who open up for Wilson Pickett and Mitch Ryder and the Detroit mm -hmm. Wheels, and nobody knew who they were. <laughs> I mean, no one knew who Cream was. Right. And, and, and some people knew who The Who were, but nobody knew. Who. In fact, they called it The Cream on the bill. It was The Cream. <laughs> and no one knew who the, the Cream were. And uh, and and I think they did NSU and I feel free from the first record because uh, the Israeli Gears hadn't come out yet, so right. that was the first album. And the Who did I can't explain in my generation because they only had one album or two albums out. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, so I'm I'm 15 year old kid 
14 year old kid like oh my god my eye can you imagine your eyeballs you know pete townsend smashing gear you know cream playing in front of you oh my god it was crazy and that's how my dreams were were made so when i meet these artists mm-hmm. and i go on oh my god you know it's like you know we, we recorded in jimmy page's house and when i finally met jimmy and robert plant i had dinner with him I'm like saying you know man i was like front row at the Fillmore East when you guys first played in 1969 it's true i mm-hmm. i saw zeppelin as an opening act and zeppelin zeppelin opened for iron butterfly and I didn't go to the show to see Zeppelin. Right. I went to see Iron Butterfly. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting front row, and 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 this is one of those Bill Graham bills. Right. The opening act was a gospel group. Wow. Called Porter's Popular Preachers. Mm-hmm. And they did gospel songs for an hour. And it was fun, you know? But it was like, if I had a hammer, we shall overcome all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then Zeppelin comes out and plays the first Zepp album. Ooh. It was cra- I mean... So, you know, when you get to meet these guys, you get to meet Robert Plant, you have dinner with him, and you go, i got to tell you, <laughs> I saw you as an opening act. But then Robert Plant says to me, well, you know, in 1974, I was in the Hamptons with John Bonham, and and uh, we walked into this bar, and there's a band called Twisted Sister, but, we, but uh, you know, these two guys were kissing on stage, and he saw Twisted Sister... <laughs> In, when we were playing the bars in Long Island, this is the last thing I expected to hear from Robert Plant. When That's I'm amazing. telling him, I was front row at the Fillmore East, man. I saw you in Isaac's Dining. And he goes, yeah, well, you know, we were staying with – this goes back to a story that some girl told me in 1974 or 73 – Um out in the Hamptons, she says, "Oh, Zeppelin's going to come. A couple guys, Zeppelin's going to come down and see your band." Now that's a, re- it, it is not a ridiculous statement. It's the Hamptons. It's the summertime. <laughs> Possibly, it, there's some possibility that maybe this girl's not on Quaaludes and not hallucinating this conversation. And I said, to her, "How do you know this?" She goes, "Oh, because my girlfriend is fucking somebody in Bad Company's road crew, and they said that they're out here and they're going to come by." And this is the story. So I don't believe it necessarily, and I never heard that. I mean, I remember that day I said, did anybody see anyone that resembled two guys from Led Zeppelin? You know, and anyway, turns out Plant saw us. So before I can go on, before I could tell him, I saw him. Because this guy says, by the way, Robert, this is JJ Twisted. Twisted sister, oh, my God, back in the day, you know, it was me and Bonzo were out in the Hamptons. And, now, in those days, me and my original lead singer, not D, the first singer, we used to be chained together, mm-hmm. dog collars. I remember chained watching together. that. We, we played the medley and, and kissed during the Bowie medley. That's how we got laid. Girls freaked out and they <laughs> needed to have sex. It's great. What a concept. It's it's, it's like a backwards concept, isn't it? (laughs) You tell me, uh, we're going to get laid looking like this? I'm all for it. (laughs) That's amazing. God knows I would be horrible at a dating app. I've never dated in a mile. I wouldn't even know what to say. I really wouldn't know. But anyway, um, so girls would go crazy. There were groupies everywhere. You know, this is before AIDS. All you had to worry about were babies back mm-hmm. in those days and, 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 and gonorrhea. Two small <laughs> issues. You didn't worry about dying. So, um, you know, there were groupies everywhere. Anyway, so Plant goes, yeah, we saw these. We got, and I said to him, you saw me? You saw me? You saw me? That was me. That was me. And then, you know, and then I said, you know, when I saw you at the Fillmore, that first time I was doing a drug deal, 
Uh, I had five pounds of weed in a shopping bag. And I was standing under the marquee of the Fillmore, and the guy never showed up. So I had, you know, and by the way, just to put this in perspective for all you newbies out there, weed in those days was 150 a kilo. So I $300 bought you two pounds, two, four pounds of weed. Right? Oh, four and a half pounds. Of the good old days. <laughs> like 300 bucks. So I had, so I had, uh, I think two kilos in a shopping bag waiting for some gun to show up, and he didn't. And someone said, hey, man, uh, Front row seat, Iron Butterfly. I went, how bad could it be? It's freezing out. And mm-hmm. I got five pounds of weed, so I'll smoke my way through when I got a DeVita. Like, how fucked up could you, you know, like, how bad could it be? So I go in and, so anyway, I'm telling Robert, yeah, I had five pounds of weed and like, and I'm passing joints all over the place. And John Robert goes, that was you. I couldn't fucking breathe. I couldn't breathe. <laughs> So much pot. It was. I know. Go. That was me. <laughs> so sometimes when you, you, know, you meet your heroes, you have some funny conversations. You know that's amazing because you know you know again to kind of humble you or whatever is that you know you've been a hero of mine for like I said since I first saw you play guitar. Is is that yellow and black pointy guitar? I don't even remember what kind of. What? It was a guild. It was a guild. That's what it was. Yeah. You know why? You know why I had that guitar? Why? I'll tell you. Okay, so here I am playing Les Pauls, going back to nineteen. I bought my first Les Paul in nineteen seventy. Right. So here I am, nineteen eighty four. Twisted Sister breaks big, right? One of the biggest bands in the world. Eighty four, MTV, everything, you know, great. I go to the first Nam show. You know what that is? That's yeah. The national- Music merchants, uh, that's where all the whore musicians go to get all their free shit. It's always like a, and, out in LA or something uh, like that. Yeah. Anaheim. Anaheim. So I, got, that's, yeah. I got into Anaheim and the, I mean, Twisted Sisters exploded. Two things happened at the show, at the NAMM show. Number one, I walk into the Marshall Room. For people who don't know about Marshall Amps, they are the, you have to play a Marshall or you're not a heavy metal band. End of story. Everyone has Marshall stacks. It's just the way it is. I don't care. What else? You have to have a wall of Marshalls behind you. That's standard operating procedure in a heavy metal band. And we've been playing Marshalls for years. And Marshalls uh, was a British band, but their American importer factory was in Long Island. So we mm-hmm. knew them because we would go and get our amps fixed there or get stuff directly from them because they were kind of fans of the band. They knew us really well. We mm-hmm. knew them. Marshall was famous to never give anybody anything. That was it. They would never give any band anything. They were really famous for, for that. You just buy it and we'll sell it to you at wholesale but you buy it mm-hmm. and Jimi hendrix is famous for saying i don't want free gear i just want to make sure that you have gear available to me anywhere in the world i play right and he plays marshals okay so i walk into the marshall booth and it's like jj man wow we're so proud of you guys you know local guys thank you man we're you know and you guys are so big man we kind of did a survey and and they said, you know, that the three top bands in the world were ACDC, Van Halen, and, and, and Twisted Sister. And because you guys are local, we're giving you six stacks. Okay? Oh, that's so, amazing. <laughs> so Marshall gave us six stacks at that show. However, at that same show, I walked into the Gibson booth thinking, well, J.J. French, play Les Pauls since 1970. This is my time. I'm going to get like a ton of guitars and I walk in to the booth and a guy comes up to me, can I help you? I said, oh yeah, JJ, Twisted Sister. So can we, what kind of arrangement, man? Because you know, I've been playing Les Paul since 1970. And he said to me, where do you live? I said, Manhattan. He goes, you know, uh, 48th Street? I said, of course I do. He says, well, they got good deals on 48th Street. <laughs> <laughs> Slammed. <laughs> 
Yeah, go down there. You get good deals. I went, are you? So I was really angry, like oh, yeah. really angry. And I was walking down another aisle and I ran to a mutual friend of mine who was with the president of Guild Guitars. Mm-hmm. And they go, you look upset. I said, upset? Fuck, do you believe that Gibson refused to give me Gibson? I've been using Les Pauls and Gibson refused to give me JJ Frank. Who's my sister? Are you fucking kidding? And the guy from Gil went, That's ridiculous. I'll give you all the guitars in the world. And that's how I, I became very confused with Mark Johns. And that's how I had the, the Gil guitars. It was so funny because that guitar, when I saw that, to me, that was like the holy grail of guitars. But so when my dad presented me with like the blue burst West Stone, I was like, this will do. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, look, before I bought my Telecaster, I had all sorts of shit, you know, like at least at least you probably had a guitar that played. We had Sokovas and Kents, these mm-hmm. companies you probably never heard of, made in Japan with a million yeah. toggle switches and buttons on them. And mm-hmm. they were awful guitars. And that's how we started playing. You know, I think I bought a Hagstrom bass. That was my first instrument mm-hmm. was a Hagstrom bass. And then... And then um, my parents had no money, you know, and so I couldn't rely on them to give me money. So I started dealing weed and that's how I come. I started making a lot of money and um, and uh, started buying guitars and amps and everything. So I so uh, I was 50 years ahead of my time since marijuana has just been legalized in New York State. But I was a visionary. You were a fish. And I love that. Dealer. I was a drug dealer way back in 1967. You know, I was way ahead of you guys, man. 55 years ago, I pioneered. I could have told you 55 years ago to legal it, legalize it. You didn't pay attention <laughs> So I started selling weed and started making money really fast. I started making a lot of money really fast. I said, what am I going to do with this money now? I'll just buy gear. Because mm-hmm. my idea was not to become, um, you know, like a... Uh, Rico Suave, you know, become like a big deal. That wasn't the key. The point right. was to buy gear, have money to go to shows, mm-hmm. and um, buy stereo equipment, buy albums, and keep enough drugs on me to be high 24 hours a day for five mm-hmm. years, which I did a great job at all of that. <laughs> I dropped out of school, which was a decision I made, and my mother was pissed. Mm-hmm. And the day I dropped out with two months to go in my senior year, mm-hmm. that was the political era of the, at the at the time. It was crazy. Like mm-hmm. you have to have been through it to understand it. But the Kent State kids were killed, and there was anti-war demonstrations. You know, unlike today, where you could argue that half our audience likes Trump and half hates him. You know, like mm-hmm. an equal measure, like half and half. Back in my day, everybody hated the war. Right. Everybody hated Richard Nixon. Everybody hated Lyndon Johnson. So you could stand up in front of 400,000 people and go, the war sucks. And everybody would scream, you know, the war sucks. Right. So so that was the era. And I I made a proclamation to my mother when I dropped out of high school. She goes, what are you going to like? She almost said, what are you going to do with your life? But she didn't say it like that. But she's basically (laughs) like, what are you fucking crazy? What are you going to do? And I said to her, the quote was, don't worry about me. I'm going to become a rock star because it just sounded really good. You know, I just needed to shut her up. What do you mean? Don't worry about me. I'm become a rock star. I was like, oh fuck! I just put my foot in my mouth. I better become one. More on. Well, how how did your mom react when you actually became one? Uh, you know, unfortunately, she passed away um, in '74. So oh, I'm sorry to hear that, man. Yeah. And my father died the day Stay Hungry went platinum. Wow. So I have a so I have a photo. Uh, I knew the record was selling well. We were in the middle of a tour. I had the record label. 
um, make him an album and ship it to him. And a photo was taken of him holding it a week before he died. Oh, that had just so bittersweet. He, yeah. He kind of knew my mother never knew. Um, she never knew. And you know, they're I, we're not religious, so I'm not going to sit there and go in heaven or whatever. Right. I, yeah. So neither just, am I, you know, yeah. I'm basically an atheist or I'm an agnostic, which is an atheist with a fallback. Um, so I don't, I mean, I'd like to think, <clears throat> l- listen, they may not be here in body, mm-hmm. but they're in here in spirit and soul. You know, that never leaves you. Oh, yeah. In fact, in fact, you know, John Lennon's effect on people will be lasting hundreds of years, like Beethoven's. You know, yeah. I mean, you, you leave lasting artistic uh, um, impressions behind, like great painters, and you will inspire people for hundreds of years. So it, you don't have to be here physically. The job you've done is enough. Oh, um, Absolutely. And when I hear what you say to me about, you said very nice things about what we meant to you. And those are the most humbling comments. I have emails from people. Uh, I've got, I've collected them over the last couple of years. Man, you don't know what you guys did. You don't know what your songs meant to my life. You don't know what your lyrics meant mm-hmm. to me. You got me through tough times. Um, you know, how do you remain cynical when you read stuff like that? You know, you realize, wow, I, it was, it was meaningful. It really meant something. So when I meet my idols, I tell them, I said, man, you know, like when I when I think of the greatest shows I've ever seen, and I've seen ridiculously great shows, mm-hmm. but the most ridiculously great show I think I saw was a night that I didn't expect to be particularly great. It was just I saw Leon Russell, Mad Dogs, and Englishman at the Fillmore, oh. and uh, and it may have been the greatest show I ever saw. And I've seen I saw Hendrix, Band of Gypsies, and the Stones in '69, '72. Mm-hmm. You know, the Stones in '69 and '72, and Zeppelin in '69 and '70. 71, 72, arguably were the greatest rock bands ever mm-hmm. that I ever witnessed. Uh, Hendrix was uh, twice I saw him. Once he was terrible. Once he was the best I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, I've seen some amazing shows, and those shows inspire me. So I would go home. I go to the Fillmore, come home at four o'clock in the morning, put a guitar over my shoulder, and pretend to be whoever I saw that night. Mm-hmm. Jimi Hendrix, or it was the guitar player from Pacific Gas and Electric, is a band you probably never heard of, mm-hmm. or Henry Vestine from Can't Heat, the band Can't Heat, or Eric Braun from Iron Butterfly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could just, you know, I saw the Almonds' first show ever in New York opening for the dead. Mm, I'm a huge Almonds fan. <laughs> that yeah. show was Almond Brothers' Love and the Grateful Dead. For those people who don't know who Love is, oh. Great band. Made a lot of good records, but one of their albums, Forever Changes, is generally considered one of the greatest albums in 1967, and that year was a year full of great albums. The Doors debuted in 67, Hendrix debuted in 67, Propel Hiram debuted in 67. Um, There were some ridiculously great records, you know. Mm -hmm. Light My Fire came out in June. Um, Purple Haze was released in April, but didn't really hit until September. Mm -hmm. Think about we got the debut of the Doors, debut of Jimmy, you know, um, uh, you know, Sergeant Pepper, the summer of '67. Except that John Lennon will tell you that his favorite song of '67 was "Wider Shade of Pale" by Procol Harum, mm-hmm. which he said was the big best song of the year. When Lennon tells you that's the best song of the year, and they just released Sergeant Pepper, you know, got to pay attention to that shit. Okay. Plus, Pink Floyd released "Piper at the Gates of Dawn." Mm-hmm. Or- the greatest psychedelic record ever made. I mean, oh my God, it's crazy. 
I mean, that album, I don't know if you're a Floyd fan or you go back to Sid Barrett era. Yeah, I'm a huge Floyd fan, actually. Yeah. Did you listen to Piper at the Gates of Dawn? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, of course, I'm more partial to, you know, the the Gilmore, you know, like Uma Guma and stuff like that, though. But I, I feel like the older I've gotten, the more I've been, I've been able to appreciate, you know, not just Sid Barrett's era Floyd, but like even his, you know, solo album, you know, Madcap Laughs, things like yeah. that, you know, like. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's spawned really, the whole genre. Yeah, and that's a great solo record, but you have to really be into him mm-hmm. to understand that record. And he was fucked up. I mean, he really got himself fucked. In fact, I had tickets to see them with him. Mm-hmm. And and he abandoned ship, you know, a couple of months before the, that tour ended. So I never got a chance to see him with him. But I saw mm-hmm. Gilmore many times. And I think Gilmore, you know, talk about great guitar players. I think David Gilmore and Mark Knopfler... Uh, are some of the best players ever. And Gilmore is just spectacular. He's, you he's you know, earlier you were talking about the like about how the whole like versus the the shred versus like single note type playing. Like to me, Floyd was one of those bands that, as a whole, if you listened to it, it was just unfathomable how great they were. But if you picked them apart, member by member, and what they were doing. There was so much sparseness, you know, like the the playing was so sparse, but yet, you know, you could breathe between all the notes and stuff. But it was so much more than what they were as players. It's like they were their focus was the song, not like, look at me and how I can play. It was what does the song call for? What does that have in common with the Beatles, Stones, Who's Up, Floyd, Queen? It's always the song, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. With all those bands. It's always the song. But what's interesting about Floyd versus the Beatles, Stones, Who, Zepp, and Queen, when you think about Pink Floyd, is that the Beatles drummer, you know who he is. Yeah. You know, it's Ringo. And Ringo. you know Charlie yeah. Watts. Mm-hmm. And you know Roger Taylor from Queen. Right. And and you know Keith Moon from The Who, mm-hmm. and you know John Bonham from Zeppelin, right? right? And each one of these guys is different, and each one is amazing. But you would not necessarily have the name Nick Mason rolling off of your lips. Exactly. Okay? Yeah. That, that that's one of the more interesting aspects about Pink Floyd, is that um, Nick Mason it plays drums in one of the biggest bands in the history of the world, but you don't really think about him Mm-mm. ever. Whereas you can't think about Zeppelin without Bonham. Right. And you can't think about the Who without Keith Moon, and you can't hear think about the Beatles without Ringo, and you can't think of the Rolling Stones without Charlie Watts. Why do you think so that is? I don't know. Why do you think that is? Do you agree with me? Oh no, I totally agree because one of the things I've I, I've I've talked about a lot, especially with uh, you know my best friend James in North Carolina, is that you know he's one of those drummers that that, that like you said it never seems to make. A list never seems to make a top list or be the first thing you, person you think of when you think of a great drummer. But man, you listen to the swing that he plays with and say like, you know, shine on you crazy diamond, you know, or, you know, even, <clears throat> you know, even like set the controls for the heart of the sun, that kind of stuff. Like when you listen to the stuff he's doing, it is so subtle and percussive. But at the same time, it's like, he knows what he's doing. He knows the drums. He likes the drums. He's not banging them and he's not in your face. But to be a drummer that sits so far back and lets the music kind of run the show, that 
but that if you pull him out, you know he's gone. If that makes sense, you know. But with well, him there, I, I, he's part of yeah. the whole. He's part of that, that 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 soundscape. You know. I think Mick, Mick Fleetwood is like that too. To me, mm-hmm. he just is, he plays the right parts at the right time. You know, always. Now Ringo, I think, is an amazing drummer. Oh. I mean, I think Ringo's phenomenal, and I think that the Beatles wouldn't swing without Ringo. And, and mm-hmm. Mike Portnoy, who is arguably the greatest living prog drummer in the world right mm-hmm. now and and we you know we toured you know, he he was our replacement drummer for aj mm-hmm. we talk about this all the time ringo is amazing he's absolutely amazing he swings if you look at the ed sullivan show you look at the live stuff see how he swings man he pushes that band you know oh my gosh so the, the other thing though i've had this debate with people is who's more important to the band ginger baker to cream or or mitch mitchell to Jimi hendrix and that's and my contention is Mitch Mitchell was way more important to Jimi Hendrix than Ginger Baker was to Cream because you could have used almost any drummer to be in Cream because they were I a blues band. Agree. He was a great drummer, but you could have replaced with. But Mitch Mitchell, his jazz chops allowed Jimmy the space. To oh be yeah. Jimmy. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I even think about that. Like, if you even if you go back, especially to let, let's say like the debut Sabbath album. You listen to what Bill Ward is doing as a drummer, like it's jazz all over the place. You know, it's swing, it's groove, it's, you know, I mean, you know, of course, later on, he's considered, you know, to be a very influential metal drummer. But I'm like, man, go back and I mean, listen to what that guy's doing. It's jazz, you know, and it's flavorful, you know, because those guys grew up with that. Mm -hmm. That's why. Because their parents turned them on to Buddy Rich and to Gene Krupa. And, and that's how they learned. They learned mm-hmm. from those They learned from those guys. Most of those drummers. I mean, AJ learned from Gene Krupa. Oh, yeah. You know, you, you know I think he took lessons from Gene Krupa. So, the, the, you know, or, and Buddy Rich. These guys were, were incredible. Think about this. Me, my generation, we learned our guitar parts from Mike Bloomfield and and uh you know albert king and bb king and uh-huh. you know but not kids today who are, who are 13 14 years old have billions of guitar players to play it's kind of like until the four minute mile was broken nobody could run the four minute mile once it was broken everybody can run the four minute mile so <laughs> so right. back in my day when you listen to guitar players and bands in the 60s they're kind of simple leads you know because the most they could do was copy surf guitar playing you know five years earlier or what or maybe rockabilly playing right but guitar players now, man, they have a standard. You know, they got Tommy Emmanuel showing them how to play, you know, just because you turn on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And you get to see you know, these guys like Oz Noy. I don't know if you're familiar with Oz. Yes. Oz is yeah. Maybe. So Oz, Oz is a neighbor. He lives oh, over. that's awesome. So I didn't... He comes over a lot. I've sold him guitars. And Oz is amazing. But, mm-hmm. you know, I don't understand his playing is so out there. Like, you right. know, it's too much excellence for me. Like I tell him, I usually go see Oz play and I last 10 minutes and he calls me up and goes, where'd you go? I said, I can only take so much excellence in such a short period of time. <laughs> I, you know, like I don't even understand it. I, I don't. I, I interviewed Steve Vai recently and Nuno Betancourt and Joe Bonamassa. These uh-huh. are all spectacular players. Right. In my book, you know, and I don't relate to Oz and I don't relate to Steve Vai's stuff because it's way too um, classically uh, – uh, uh, 
arranged uh, uh, extra, extraordinary stuff. Whereas Joe Bonamassa is a meat and potatoes blues player, right? Yeah, but just but just kind of taking it to you know a Stevie Ray Vaughan level, next Stevie Ray Vaughan level mm-hmm. like that. And and Tommy Emmanuel, are you familiar with Tommy Emmanuel? Yeah, he's a he's a very kind of progressive kind of like he he, he works with all these like odd tunings and things like that, and is very like technically. He's, he's insane. I actually made it through a thirty minute. I actually made it thirty minutes into one of his shows here in Atlanta. Did Probably. you really? Yes, I would, I would love to see him. Did you? And, and what happened? Then you just got bored with it, or what? No, it was kind of the same thing that you said. Like I actually had to go out into the lobby and kind of shake my head a little bit and just be like, I have no idea what the fuck I'm watching. This is just insanity to me. You, well, know? you know, I saw I saw Ingve in 1980. Uh-huh. And uh, I was dating a girl who who said, "Oh, we got to go see this guy Ingve Malmsteen." So I go to a club called Lamore, which is a famous rock club mm. in Brooklyn with a lot of metal bands played Lamore. We were the house band at Lamore, so I go right. to Lamore and I'm singing Lamore rocks. And the first song. The first song, I'm like, "Oh my god, this is ridiculous." Then the second song was, "Oh, that was like the first one," and the third song was. Oh, that was like the first one. And by the fourth song, I had seen him play the same solo <laughs> on four songs. That was incredible. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't the same solo, but it certainly appeared. So I didn't connect with it. Now, Ingve mm-hmm. and Twisted have played on a bunch of bills. Right. He's a spectacular player. It's just another, you know. But it's funny. I just read, was reading an interview with Ingve, and he was very matter of fact about his playing and he goes you know in germany i couldn't get arrested i'm just another guitar player in germany <laughs> I had to come over to america where you people thought it was fantastic you know it's like you people heard all this classical shit and said we're amazing and i said i'm coming from a place where there's everyone does that you know <laughs> but then you go to nashville these days and you see the most unbelievable players in nashville i mean oh, nashville yeah. really is the home of the greatest players Anywhere you go, any club you walk into, Mm -hmm. there are amazing fucking players. Like, you are not allowed to suck in Nashville, you know? If you suck, they take you out back and just shoot you and put you in a pit. Because, you know, I mean, you see 13-year-old brother and sister teams sound like Faith Hill and Tug, you know, and, 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 you know, Clint Black. And and, uh, they're just, um, they're... Tim McGraw, they're amazing singers and players. Right. This, by the way, it occurred to me, you know, you can walk into a club in New York, before COVID, you could walk into any club in New York and any club in LA and chances are you'd see a shitty band playing. And it didn't mm-hmm. matter because they just brought their friends with them and they're all drunk and they're having a good old time. <laughs> right. But, you know, basically they suck. It's alternative mm-hmm. it's, and they just are playing and they all sound like Louie Louie by the Kingsmen, you know, pretty bad. Right. But that's not the case in Nashville. In Nashville, every single club has players. So I was in there last time I was there. I walked into Roberts on Main Street, and there was a band playing in the window, you know, like during lunch break. Oh, yeah. So just a band playing in the window. And the guitar player, you know, was like blowing my mind. And I walked up to him and I said, I don't know if anyone else is paying any attention. Mm-hmm. I am. You're amazing. And he goes, thank you. I go, yeah, it's amazing down here. He goes, yeah, that's the problem. There's a lot of amazing players. <laughs> everyone's, everyone's waiting for somebody to die in a famous band. You know, I'll replace them. Replace them. Great players. I love. I write country music with a writer down there. I I think Nashville is just great. I love. And by the way, 
while I'm not a religious person, there's something to say about the discipline of the church in terms of artists, singers, players. Um, when you get oh, the yeah. church bands, mm-hmm. they only take the best. They really do. I mm-hmm. mean, all jokes aside, there's a discipline there that's crazy. And and a lot of these great southern rock players back in the 60s, they all came out of church. Oh, I mean, listen to Greg Allman. You know, yeah. I mean, that's yeah, I mean, I mean that's... Among, among everybody. They're just all the, all of those guys. You know, they just came out of church, man. They were amazing singers, amazing players with real discipline. Like they really knew what the hell they were doing. Mm-hmm. And, and it's great to watch those guys play. You know? Absolutely. And then, yeah. Then you got the Motown crew, which is just another sick crew. Ugh. Those those guys. Discipline. The Motown crew. Oh, my God. What, they played on 310 top 40 singles or something oh, like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, forget about the fact that Jerry, that Barry Gordy built one of the most astonishing houses uh-huh. for talent that has, probably you will never see, ever see that talent mm-hmm. again in Under One Roof. You got Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, Temptations, Supremes, Smokey Robinson, Martha and the Vandellas, Holland Dozier Holland that wrote ninety-five percent of the stuff. Smokey Robinson's <laughs> stuff. You've got you've got these these players that are crazy. You realize that if you took the Billboard chart and you looked at the Billboard record chart from nineteen sixty-three to nineteen sixty-seven, and you took out all Motown and all Beatle and British Invasion, you'd have almost nothing left except for the Beach Boys and the Four Seasons. <laughs> You have nothing left. I mean, and and, and by the way, kudos to the Wrecking Crew in L.A. Uh, did you see right? that documentary? Yeah, I did. One of I the did. greatest fucking things I, I, I was when Carol Kay was talking about how she, she would be laying down bass parts for all these, like, this, I mean, songs that would just blow my mind. And then she said, but she'd clock out at five o'clock and go home and make dinner for her kids. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she's like, I, I never had up. to see the road, never had to see a bus. I just yeah. did my yeah. thing. You did your thing. And and then we had the Brill Building in New York. You know about the Brill Building. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. The Brill Building, yeah, that's where Paul Simon and, and Ellie Greenwich and Carol King and Neil Diamond. Neil Diamond. Tin Pan uh, Alley, right? Is that, yeah. Yeah, Tin Pan Alley. And yeah. they just churned out songs, song hit after hit after hit mm-hmm. after hit after hit after hit. You know that there was a TV show called The Old Grey Whistle Test in England. Do you know about oh, that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've seen some some of my favorite footage off that sh- Yeah. That you know how show. they got the name The Old Grey Whistle Test? No. So apparently, as myth has it, The Old Grey Whistle Test was at the end of every songwriting day at the Brill Building, Mm-hmm. The the old guy the old like uh, the 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 black custodian guys would be you know cleaning up mm-hmm. you know what I mean like they'd be walking by Paul Simon's room and Carol King's room and Neil Diamond's room <clears> and <throat> Phil Spector's room and Shadow Morton's room and Ellie Greenwich's room and Lieber and Stoller's room mm-hmm. and the late and they'd be listening to the the late the demos that they're making that day mm-hmm. and if they could whistle the song that means it would be a hit because it would be because it was that memorable oh so yeah. It was the, it was the old gray whistle test that that's was amazing. The, Amazing. I never heard yeah. that. That's the myth of the title, the Old Grey Whistle Test. Yeah, if it passed the Old Grey Whistle Test, the song was a hit. So those guys, uh, so so the Brill Building is super famous. And, you know, we can just go into this because, I mean, I, I don't want to, like, waste your time. But this is the musical history that uh, being a New Yorker you grow up with, mm-hmm. you understand it. And, um, and, and if you love the music business, you were indelibly uh, connected to it. Right. And. 
and and if you were me, I absorbed it. So I had that whole period. Then I had the Fillmore East period, which was gigantic. And then Twisted mm-hmm. started. And after that, I went to less shows because now I'm playing the shows. I'm not. I don't have the opportunity to go see shows because I'm now playing it. So I've seen probably two thousand artists, and I've played thousands with Twisted. So I've played an awful lot. So when people say to me. Do you miss it? I go not necessarily. You, know? <laughs> you you've, I mean, you've had your fun, man. You know, I've like you've lived a good life. I did it, and it was fun to do it. But I'm I'm kind of over a lot of it. You know, it takes a lot to get me to a show. And my my wife has to go. I really want to see this artist, you know, and mm. then I'll go. But I don't really miss it. And I, when we walked away in 2016, every year someone would say to me, "You miss it," and every time I go to a show, I walk into an auditorium or a venue or a coliseum, and if I missed it, I would be thinking, I wish I could be there. Mm-hmm. But my attitude is, thank God, I don't have to be there. <laughs> so <laughs> That's how I think. I walk in and go, oh, man, God forbid I have to stand on stage. Which I never, by the way, understood that um, mentality. Like I used to <clears throat> listen to interviews by retired football players, mm-hmm. baseball players. You go, whoa, well, who's your favorite team? I, I, don't, I don't really have one. What do you mean? You don't, you don't watch your games? No. no. Well, do you, don't, you don't go? No. Why? Because I did it for 30 years. You know? oh. I don't need to see it anymore. So uh, people find it hard to believe that I would say that I'm bored of playing in front of 100,000 people, which we could do tomorrow if we wanted to. Right. The band was together. We could, and, and there was no COVID. We played to 100,000 people in Europe and South America. Um, but uh, I walked away from it having done it and been happy about it. And I, I do not miss it. Well, you know, so... I know one of the things you get asked a lot about as far as, you know, Twisted goes is, you know, you, people kind of go into, you know, Under the Blade, Can't Stop Rock and Roll, Stay Hungry and everything. And then anytime I've ever heard uh, come out and play addressed, it's usually with like a some sort of like a negative uh, connotation to it sometimes. And I actually went back and decided to give it a re-listen um, before I talked to you. And one of the things that I noticed about that album is that with the exception of a few, uh, like one or two songs that I feel like were just kind of misplaced, as in like could have been on, say, like Stay Hungry or whatever, that album was a pretty big turning point for you guys as musicians. I mean, some of those songs were just, you know, I, I mean, just so well played. And I actually had to write, oh, what was it? Uh, uh, the Fire Still Burns. That could have been Great that could song. have been one of the greatest thrash songs. I, I mean, like I'm surprised I haven't heard thrash bands covering that song. Like, so what do you think it was about "Come Out and Play" that people focused so much on on their their, their negative connotations instead of looking at things like that or like like "King of the Fools"? Like the guitar playing on that album in comparison to what was done on previous Twisted albums. It's, it, it kind of goes back to what we were just talking about, like with Floyd. It's like you guys kind of, for, at least for me, on that song, said this is what's good for this song. And the guitar playing was so subtle but so just like full, you know? like Yeah, well, the, there was one big problem with Come Out and Play. Had we not led with Leader of the Pack, had we led with Fire Still Burns, would have been a whole other story. Mm-hmm. The marketing is what fucked that record up. And there was a mistake. And we, 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 we thought for sure, you know, we were under pressure to repeat, you know, because we had a monster album. So you right. To, you're under pressure. And we made a mistake. It should have been The Fire Still Burns. It should have been a video. And it would have been ultra heavy. Oh, yeah. It would have been great. Um, 
and we blew it and that's 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 really it so that's in a nutshell what happened it was colored by leader of the pack which was misinterpreted and wrong right it's as simple as, it's really as simple as that it's like, a it, shame nothing more. yeah it's a shame but i mean it, you know it is what it is right mm-hmm. so so you know when the band finally crashed and burned and love us for suckers and we never thought it was going to come back so the fact that the band came back in 2003 mm-hmm. and had a 14 year run as one of the biggest bands in the clubs in the festival circuit in the world and we released the 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 Christmas album, which became a hit. Right. I and, consider that to be our justification for our greatness. Mm-hmm. In other words, well, that was the thing that cemented our greatness. Had we not come back. I mean, think about this. You know, if the Beatles ended after Magical Mystery Tour without the White Album and Abbey Road, they mm-hmm. would have been kind of, it would have, they would have ended with their Sgt. Pepper costumes, which were kind of like cartoonish. Right, you know, right. less credible. It's like Elvis. Elvis turned it from the hippest guy in the world into a Macy's Day float. Okay, <laughs> it's basically what happened. You know, a big fucking blown, fucking gigantic bloated piece of shit, singing fucking pops. Like I saw him in '72, and it was horrible because he was doing a Las Vegas shtick. But if he was the, the Kung Fu Elvis. If he was the 68, yeah, if he was the 68 Elvis, it would have blown my mind, but he wasn't. So what differentiates, I just wrote an article, a big thing in Goldmine magazine, the difference between Elvis, Sinatra, and the Beatles. And uh-huh. here's the difference. Elvis became a, a complete joke. Sinatra sustained his coolness all his life. He was as cool from the day, the first record to the day he died. Uh-huh. Never changed his clothes, wore the same fucking suit, <laughs> just did his shtick. And in Vegas, is still the coolest thing that ever walked Vegas's earth. Okay, whereas oh, yeah. Elvis, again, is a buffoon. The Beatles, the Beatles could have been in danger of buffoonery had they ended at Magical Mystery Tour because that kind of like, you know, that was a big disaster for them. Oh, yeah, uh, the, yeah. the, mo- the movie sucked. It was a dumbass movie. It, it would never have been released if Brian Epstein was alive, ever. It was a Paul McCartney uh, vanity project. Never would have happened. Right. Yeah. But what saved the Beatles? The White Album, which was a brilliant tour de force of a, of a double record. I mm-hmm. mean, it's, to this day, it is one of the most awesome records in the world. And people talk about Revolver, and I love Revolver. I love the White Album more mm-hmm. okay i love the white album and then of course abbey road just did it right that's like the phd performance that just mm-hmm. cemented the world no one really talks about the let it be record that much as an afterthought but the white album and abbey road is what cemented the beatles mm-hmm. not that they were not the greatest band not that they didn't have an unbelievable string of hits but let's just be clear here the Beatles were black and white on Revolver. They were Technicolor silly with Sgt. Pepper going into Yellow Summer, going mm-hmm. into um, Magical Mystery Tour. And then they come back to black and white again, if you think about it. The cover for the White Album is just nothing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. White Album, you know? <clears throat> and they basically said, take us seriously, man. You know, enough. Take it. And they delivered a record that was just mind-blowing i mean Mm. revolver yeah look rubber soul we all know it began at rubber soul and went through revolver and eventually sergeant pepper which may be the most overhyped record on the planet earth but Mm -hmm. you know i was 15 when sergeant pepper no i was 14 sergeant pepper came out Mm -hmm. so i was buying beetle records in real time right all of you guys buy it as a historical statement Mm -hmm. we bought these records in real time i know exactly where i was when i heard rubber soul i know exactly where i was when i heard sergeant pepper i know exactly where i was when i heard the white album i know exactly where i was and i was listening when i had when i bought abbey road Mm -hmm. i bought those records took them home you know and had parties 
so the Beatles benefited by the fact that they got back to business on the White Album and Abbey Road, and that cemented their reputation. Whereas Elvis is Elvis just kind of got buffooned out. You know, people smirk when they mention Elvis. You know, they smirk. Oh yeah, that guy. They remember the white jumpsuit, the fat guy, the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and the fucking like karate moves. Yeah. <laughs> All that bullshit. Meanwhile, watch Jailhouse Rock or watch King Creole. Watch mm-hmm. those movies. Oh, my God. Or watch the Elvis special, 68 Comeback Oh, my God. Special. That's one of the greatest things. Oh, come on. I mean, that's why I went to see Elvis at the Garden. I didn't expect to see the Vegas show at the Garden. No, the, I, I would have wanted that. I would have wanted that comeback special. That's what I, yeah. I mean, because to me, that's definitive Elvis, at least yeah. in, in, in my opinion, as a music fan, yeah. you know, 100 percent, man. He was he was he had everything in that special. He was as great as you'd ever want it to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you read about the, when they were filming the special in uh, in California, the president of NBC didn't know if he was making a mistake. Because it was 68, you know, and it was the Beatles, it was the war, it mm-hmm. was hippies. Nobody cared about Elvis at that point. Like, nobody cared. Right. And, and they were pitched this idea. And he said at one point during the afternoon, Elvis walked across in Burbank, he walked across whatever street that was to go to like a, a, a store across the street to get a soda. Mm-hmm. And he's standing, and he, this guy's in his window overlooking, you know, the avenue. Mm-hmm. And there's Elvis, and nobody's walking up to Elvis, and he's going, shit, does anybody know this guy? <laughs> you know, this is fucking Elvis Presley, right? And this guy's going, no one's walking up to him. Is this a mistake? <laughs> think, think about that. Like, I, I could see that. You know, oh, yeah. It was a risk. Give him a primetime special. and But how great was he in that special? Oh, it's phenomenal. I just love that. Elvis is great, but unfortunately got fucking. Well, so kind of with, like you said, like when we were talking about the um, come out and play thing, that tour was fucking massive. Like, well, the production was massive. The tour didn't last too long. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, the only thing I've ever been able to see of that is like just some grainy VHS bootleg on YouTube or something. Well, first off, like what a fucking set list, man! Like that's a that's a twisted sister fan's dream. Like when I saw that set list from that tour, I was like, "How did I not ever get to?" S- you guys are the one band that I love more than anything that I've never got to see live, ever. But like you know, there's a you know there's a lot of great DVDs out. Uh, we're, we're and uh, Live at the Astoria is my maybe my favorite. That's a great yeah. I have that one yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's incredible stuff. And 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 um, to give you an example, like in Europe, the way they put on concerts and festivals in Europe is so much better than they do in America. At least for heavy metal. Oh, you know, absolutely. Like heavy metal. Heavy metal is an afterthought here in America, but in Europe mm-hmm. and in South America, it's 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 the biggest. And I think it's probably still the biggest in the world. Still right. bigger. I believe mm-hmm. in Asia too. I believe these festivals are just gigantic. But one afternoon we played a show. In, uh, in 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 Holland, it was the Arrow Festival, and this is the kind of bill that if you're a, a if you love this kind of music, imagine this in one afternoon for 80 euros. Okay, you had Kansas, Ario Speedwagon, Motorhead, Journey, White Snake, Twisted Sister, Def Leppard, and Kiss in one day. In one afternoon, dude, give okay? me that ticket now. You know, yeah, get that ticket now. <laughs> so you had two stages on either side of these fields. And each band played an hour. And so be, because each band played an hour, they played their best songs. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? 
our white snake, our journey, our motorhead, our twisted, our Def Leppard, you know, our, you know, kiss. It was pretty freaking amazing. Those things don't happen in the United States. Mm-mm. And that particular show we played with kiss the first time and we had a 4 PM slot. And unfortunately D decided to take the last plane out of New York, which would have gotten him into Amsterdam at eight in the morning. And then there was a two hour drive to get to the festival, which is on the other side of Holland. It was a four hour drive. Anyway, it was in Nijmegen. So, um, the band arrives early the day before and, uh, and D is supposed to arrive that morning in Amsterdam. The problem was that D was at JFK and he took an Ambien on the plane and woke up seven hours later and said to the guy next to him, wow, man, that flight was amazing. It didn't even feel like it moved. And he goes, it hasn't. We've been on the tarmac for seven hours on hold. Oh, my God. So the flight doesn't arrive until until two in the afternoon or one in the afternoon. And so I, we were all sitting, we were wearing T-shirts and jeans thinking, well, we're not going to get to the show because there's no way D can make it now to um, to the venue unless you hire a helicopter. Well, when you hire a helicopter in Amsterdam, you hire the helicopter. <laughs> <in Holland. laughs> it's the only fucking helicopter. In the you got so the one. And, and they got the helicopter and it landed right behind the stage 10 minutes before four o'clock. And we, we wore t-shirts and jeans. When people say, how come you stop wearing makeup? Cause we had no idea that we were going to be playing. So we ran up on stage in t-shirts and jeans and we did the show. And the next morning, in the in the concert in the center section of the national paper in Holland, they did a review of the whole festival. It's great. Uh-huh. All the bands are great. The only photo was of Twisted Sister, and it said the only band to 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 perform a near religious experience was us. And that those are the kind of reviews that you cherish because you know that you've really done a great job oh. uh, when you do that. So um, absolutely, we've had we had a great run. We had an amazing run of festivals and. And I'm very, very grateful to it. But I have a new life now. And like I said, I have a book coming out in September. I have my podcast, The JJ French Connection. I'm having a hell of a, a good time doing it. Meanwhile, Dee's doing his thing. He has another record coming out. Yeah. I know that Dee and Eddie are doing a, a tribute to Leslie West. They're doing theme for an imaginary Western. I think Mark Portnoy is playing drums on that. Mm-hmm. That's happening. Eddie does his stuff. Mark has a has a show uh, called Area 22. It's a it's a it's a cable TV show. Uh, Mike Portnoy is in every band ever known to mankind simultaneously <laughs> on the same day. Exactly. I mean, Mike Portnoy does play for the Beatles, Stones, Who's uh, Floyd, Queen, ACDC, uh, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix. Oh, and uh, Sons of Apollo, and uh, you know, and, and Shattered Fortress. Uh, and every other project, Portnoy is a rolodex of insanity. I don't even understand. I talked to him. I go, "How the hell do you even keep a record of this? How do you do this?" The only other musician I know is that is that busy is Warren Haynes. Like that guy. Like I saw that guy play with uh, the Almond Brothers, Government Mule, and Phil Lesh, all oh. in one night, and I was just like. Yeah. Yeah, he's another and, one of those guys. And he cracks a smile the whole night, yeah. you know? And I'm just going, like, how do you even – like, my wife was just like, he must be the busiest guy in rock right now. Yeah, know? well, he may be. I can tell you, Portnoy is so insane. I don't I, – I love I love Mike. He came mm-hmm. in. He loved AJ. He was the best thing in the world to come in and do it. He was the most incredible professional on the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, what a sweetheart of a man. You know, just a great guy and, and a, a phenomenal drummer and, and did AJ proud. And he's wonderful. And to my fellow band members, to Dee and to Eddie and to Mark, you know, I mean, without those guys, I, without those guys, you wouldn't even be interviewing me. Right. Mm-hmm. Because you're the sum total of 
of the people around you. So they've always been great, and there's great supporters. When it came to performing between the lines as a sport uh, sports analogy, you know, mm-hmm. what happens between the lines is all that matters. Oh, absolutely. What happens between the lines with those guys are some of the best rock and roll ever played, and I'm very proud. JJ, this has been just such a, a thrill for me, and the fact that you took enough time to talk to this punk ass kid who has a blog and a podcast. Like, I wish I could go you back. Mean, you're not paying. You're not paying me. Excuse me. Well, I thought. I thought. Did you write five thousand dollars? Well, do you take Venmo, PayPal? <laughs> we take everything. Man. I take Bitcoin. I take, I take Ethereum. I take fucking, I take NFTs, you name it. Are you I fucking kidding? It. I'll take a traveler's check. Fuck the, uh, well, God knows. Those are the days. When I went to Europe in 71. Take your American Express traveler's checks. Just yeah, fill but, your wallet with them, right? You know? Oh, my so, God. Anyway, it's been a but, pleasure. Thank you so much, man, for J- being a fan. JJ, thank you so much for, and, and for just being you. And this was, a, a, like I said, this was a real thrill for me. And so I really appreciate it talking to you is fantastic you were everything and more than i hoped you'd be i really do appreciate that thank you i appreciate that too don you take care of yourself and good luck 